five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hello, space enthusiasts. This week I sat down with Josh Weston, the CEO and co-founder of the UK-based space startup Spaceforge. Spaceforge is developing a spacecraft platform for in-space manufacturing. That sounds really futuristic, right? Well, it's starting to happen and the potential is really exciting. It's so exciting actually that E2MC, the venture fund where I'm the managing partner, invested in Spaceforge recently. As always, feel free to email us your questions or comments on the episode at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com or post them on our Twitter, which is podcast underscore space. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcast platform. Now here are a couple of short messages from our sponsors, then please enjoy my conversation with Josh. My name is Raphael Rodkin and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I am an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. Hey, I'm here today with Josh Weston, uh, the CEO and co-founder of Spaceforge. Josh, how are you? Hey, Raph, really good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, and congratulations again. You guys uh, announced yesterday a seed financing round, which um, the venture firm E2MC Ventures, which I'm the managing partner of, we're very happy to be in that round. So congrats again on that. Thank you. Yeah, great to have you with us. Great. Uh, Josh, do you want to just give us the two-minute elevator pitch on what Space Spaceforge is and what, what you guys do? Sure. Spaceforge really solves the problems around how you scale in-space manufacturing. In-space manufacturing is nothing new. Uh, started on Skylab, I think in 1974, if my history lesson uh, is correct. Uh, moved into the space shuttle and then eventually onto the space station. But the issue that we have is that space station really is the only available piece of infrastructure that we have right now to conduct in-space manufacturing. And quite simply, it's not a factory. It's getting old. It's been permanently habited for about 20 years. It leaks oxygen and air conditioning coolant. Uh, and it's actually not at that very high an altitude. Um, so you don't get away from quite a bit of Earth's atmosphere. So you end up with this residual kind of good microgravity but contaminated vacuum. So at Spaceforge, what we're doing is we're solving that issue by creating the Forge Star. The Forge Star is a self-orbiting, standalone mini factory in space. It's conventionally launched like most other satellites on a, on a standard rocket. It goes above the space station to at least 500 kilometers altitude and it conducts a manufacturing process in space. And at the end of its production cycle, it returns itself back to Earth so that we can deploy the materials we've made in space back on the ground. Terrific. Okay, there is a lot to unpack there. And given that where our podcast is targeted at a non-specialist audience, we will have to go through some of that detail. But let me ask you just with a very simple question. How did you wake up one day and decide to start a space manufacturing company? How did that happen? Yeah, so uh, I was uh, I started my career at Talisalania Space. I jumped around a lot, um, started in legal and contracts, reviewing um, European Space Agency contracts for things like ExoMars. Then I moved into government relations, 
um, space marketing, and then eventually satellite sales, which until CEO and co-founder was by far my coolest job title and coolest job. Uh, but while I was there, I met my co-founder, um, Andrew Bacon. And Andrew was a systems engineer at Talis, um, and he led part of the advanced concepts team um, for them, which was it's kind of a bit like Lockheed's skunk work. So they come up with you know crazy ideas. Um, and I had some sales responsibility for the innovation portfolio. We used to bat basically internal ventures around. We covered everything from um, you know mining the moon to Quidditch in space. And one day we were we were we were back and forthing with ideas. And to be quite honest, none of our ventures were really that successful inside Talis. Mm. Um, mostly because we weren't that interested in the telecom market, which is their <clears throat> which is their standard fare. Mm-hmm. Um, and that wasn't really the reason why we got into the space industry. And basically, we were looking at players like Made in Space um, sure. and the success that they'd had. And then we were then we were looking at really what what are the what are the boundaries to really growing in space manufacturing. And we decided on one side it was the infrastructure piece, i.e., only being able to go to the space station, and the other was. Um, as cool as some of the technologies were, many of the in-space manufacturing plays were about making bigger and better things in space for space. And we mm-hmm. saw a niche to make things in space for use back on our planet. Um, and that's that, that was kind of the genesis of it, was that actually there was an enormous opportunity for in-space manufacturing if you could leverage the benefits back on Earth, quite quite literally, um, almost as the ultimate downstream space company, that we were making mm-hmm. something in space and you could use it in an electric vehicle, in a medical device, uh, in renewable energy, nuclear fusion, quantum computing, pretty much any, any sector that's significantly growing itself at the moment, we saw an avenue for in-space manufacturing to help. And mm-hmm. so in 2018, in the summer, we were having a conversation after work and decided it was it was time to go for it. Um, so we got set up in Andy's garage um, in the outskirts of Bristol, started making prototypes and, and that sort of thing. And uh, well, kind of the journey, you know, it's all, all history from there. Really, it's it was quite it was quite phenomenal doing that kind of thing. Um, we did we did take the idea to the Talis venture team, and they were like, "No, this isn't us. This isn't Telecom." Uh, and we were like, "Well, do you mind if we do it?" And they were like, "No, go for it." Uh, and so we did. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So, so you already made a very interesting distinction, which I also use myself a lot when I explain uh, in-space manufacturing, which is there's the in-space manufacturing, like you mentioned, where you produce something for use right there in space, which, for example, that company you mentioned, Made in Space, is focused on. And then there is the other thing, which is producing something in space, but bringing it back to Earth, which obviously has the advantage that you could address, hopefully, some very big existing markets on Earth. However, probably a lot of people are now wondering, okay, if you produce something in space for space, that kind of intuitively makes sense because maybe it's not there in space or it's too expensive to bring up on a rocket. Why would you ever produce something in space to bring back to Earth? Is that not horribly expensive? Like, what are the advantages of, of doing that? So to start off with, if you if, if we didn't have the context of basically human history and, and quite frankly, even our evolution, the way that we manufacture on the ground doesn't actually make that much sense. So we live mm. on a we live on a planet with gravity, which weighs us down. We have a dense atmosphere and we have a fairly consistent temperature across the whole across the whole world. Now, none of those things are actually that can that useful for trying to manufacture something. Um, mm-hmm. We have found ways to overcome some of those things. So we invented the oven and the refrigerator to raise and lower temperatures. 
we uh, 400 odd years ago invented the vacuum pump mm-hmm. at the time didn't know what to do with it other than the fact that we observed basically nature didn't like it i think was the um, was the term they even used but now we use the vacuum pump in the production from computer chips all the way through to the most efficient way to milk a cow but maintaining vacuum at a temperature which is not basically room temperature and microgravity on earth is incredibly difficult to do at the same time to the point that it's actually cheaper to go to space to do so. Um, And so in space, you have the benefits of overcoming all of those earth barriers. So you have microgravity, so close to weightlessness. You have uh, high purity vacuum. um, So you don't need to take vacuum pumping equipment with you because you have the vacuum of space. And you know you can you can readily access ten Kelvin and so near zero, near absolute zero if you if you so wish, um, which has some useful uh, properties for some industrial processes. So it's really gotten to the stage where the space environment is better for manufacturing almost anything that we make on Earth, and it's now a question of how do you do that commercially. Um, and and viably to the to the extent that it's one useful that you've done it there and two um, is useful to the market back on the ground and that's that's what we're looking to solve at Spaceforge. Can you maybe give us a few examples of like where microgravity or hard vacuum are? I assume those are the two main elements of the space environment, right? Where they are most been why they are beneficial for those use cases and then i'm also curious to know what which use cases you might be most excited about sure so uh, i mean the classic example is fiber optic cable this is exactly what made in space did on the space station a few years ago uh, so they use the glass fluoride um, composite called zblan or zblan if you're in the us and essentially it's a it's a fiber optic cable which if you try to produce it on the ground it effectively it comes out cloudy so it's quite difficult to transmit data down it. Um, but if you make it in space, you don't have the same issues that you do on the ground when it comes to mixing um, different materials. So you get a much more uniform um, alloy. Translates into a fiber optic cable, which is you know tens of times more efficient at transmitting data, and then that means that you can you know you can get better bandwidth. You can um, you know send emails faster. I mean, emails is probably less of one that it's used for today. Mm-hmm. But more things like financial transactions, um, mm-hmm. currency exchange, those sorts of things. Uh, and then I mean beyond beyond things like alloys, you also have composite production. Again, in a, in a similar fashion that you're able to more uniformly uh, print or, or additively produce those sorts of um, composites. And then into life sciences, um, vaccine discovery, uh, drug discovery, drug shelf life extension uh, through improvements to things like freeze drying. Um, and to be honest, you can then even look at metal alloying, which is something that really intrigues mm-hmm. us over at Spaceforge. So going to space basically enables hundreds of millions of new uh, alloy combinations that essentially aren't possible to create on Earth. Uh, And primarily that comes down, one, to gravity. So uh, a crude example would be if you were trying to mix uh, aluminium and lead. Um, No idea why that would be. No idea (laughs) why why that would be. (laughs) No idea why it would be useful. But uh, just because they have such different properties, trying to get that to uniformly mix on the ground is quite difficult. Whereas space, because you have that free fall environment, you're able to produce a perfectly mixed lead and aluminium alloy. And that might be the same for platinum group metals, uh, which obviously are used a lot in high value manufacturing. And that's some of the things that we're looking to explore. And so it's those those twin benefits of the um so really that comes off the benefit of 
microgravity, the benefit of vacuum is that although we can create vacuum on Earth, you still have uh, quite a high probability that you will eventually get that vacuum contaminated, whether or not that's impurities mm. in the raw materials that you take in with you or having a human in the loop. Uh, in space, you don't have that problem. Uh, you would if you were to make something on the space station or, or quite mm -hmm. close to it. But with um, with a factory that orbits away from the space station, you have a much higher purity vacuum uh, and you, you have much lower risk of introducing contaminants into that process because the vacuum isn't artificial. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's funny. I was just listening to you on, on the alloys. It's something I haven't really thought about. But the lead and aluminum, I just realized I have this crazy friend of mine who is a very prominent um, artist who works with metal sculptures. Maybe we can make some really cool metal sculpture we couldn't do on Earth and sell it for a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I mean, that was that was one of the scary things when we when we started Spaceforge was we were looking at you know things you could make in space and turn a profit. And what yes. was really worrying was how lucrative basically the luxury item and fine art market could be oh, yes. for things made in space. Um, yes. In fact, we even we even had an approach from a watch company um, that wanted to look at making parts of watches um, in space, really just to say that they'd been in made in space, you know, and might even offer a slight improvement in the timing accuracy. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. I think we will actually see quite a bit of that and it's not necessarily a bad thing it will be i think hopefully one of these cases where rich people and their desires can help uh, partly finance uh, activities which then open up space for all of us <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I, would, I would absolutely agree and certainly i would not say no to a watch that had been made in space <laughs> yeah same here i'd like one actually there's there actually just meteorite watches but uh yeah i guess it'd be similar to that um yeah. but let's let's come back to zplan because you mentioned it's the most prominent um use case i mean i gotta ask zplan of course the main use is in telecommunications did you guys not mention that to talas alinea then uh so no we didn't because uh, so Zblan isn't isn't one of our focus points. Um, right. Really, we saw Understood. we saw we saw that market as I mean we saw it as very active um, mm -hmm. and therefore therefore promising. But it, by the time we we developed the idea behind Spaceforge, the 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 market for fiber optic cable being made in space was already quite congested. Um, and so we thought, actually, you know what, rather than try and introduce ourselves into that game and as much as we could leverage our space knowledge, actually, we had pretty pretty good strong ties into the electronics industry, composites mm. and advanced materials. So we decided to go and play elsewhere instead. Um, so we're interested in physical physical materials, um, but less so around, around Zplan and more around the improvements that you can create in anything from a... Um, from an engine in a plane through to the powertrain in an electric vehicle. So I, I think what you just said is probably just going to be surprising to a lot of listeners that uh, anybody would characterize the in-space manufacturing mar market as congested. <laughs> but I guess, I guess, I guess, I see what you're saying. I, there's a few competitors who are already working on uh, or Zblan, whose names we shall not mention on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, yeah. We 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 were we we were aware of around between twelve and fifteen companies doing it, which. I mean, yep. obviously, you know, against That's... telecom or Earth observation is, you know, even people looking at telecom constellations is minuscule. Um, but we figured yeah. let's tell a different story. But but I mean, just um, you mentioned before you were talking about um, viability, and I assume you were referring to economic viability. I guess you know, if there's 12 to 15 people looking at that, 
does that then mean should be interpreted as meaning that the economic viability of Zeeblan today is established and it's it is actually economically viable today? That's a good question. So, well, we know we know it's we know it's possible to produce it, and we know it's possible to produce it in such a quantity that it's useful um, a telecom provider back on Earth. But the the big question that I think really remains around Zeeblan is uh, it's almost last mile delivery. You might have a, a you might have a raw material or a, or a fiber optic cable that has the properties of improving data rates by however many times, but it might be even something like the connectors at either end of that cable. If they're not if they're not made for handling those data rates, then you don't get those efficiency improvements. And so there's there has mm. to be a really big shift in the telecom industry in order to be preparing the other pieces of infrastructure that you need in order to support uh zeeblan being deployed mm, that's very that's very interesting so let me ask this in a more general way i suppose the economic viability point i mean you, you said that it's um it's cheaper to go to space right now and this is why a lot of this works but this is a relatively recent development right yeah. so with with those cheaper costs of accessing and operating in space i mean how many of those things you mentioned before roughly speaking would you consider economically viable now and then if we assume that this trend of access to space is getting cheaper you know through developments like starship and just generally satellite and satellite component costs are falling like a few years from now uh, how do you see this developing the economic viability point so i would say that the 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 economic viability right now it's probably in the the the, the, the tens to maybe a squidge over a hundred different types of things you could make in space and oh, wow. probably return uh, and and make a profit i think the real issue around economic viability for in space manufacturing is not being able to make something in space it's been able to return it and then it's been able to scale what you've been producing mm-hmm. um, and i think one of the things that's been missing from in space manufacturing is cadence it's all well mm-hmm. and good that we can go into space and make a few miles of fiber optic cable but if you can only make i don't know 10 miles of it and then it takes you a whole year to produce another 10 miles then that's probably going to be the slowest rollout of a new type of internet in a long time um and i think i think really it's it's finding those niche markets it might already be in those low tens to a hundreds um that can support it or it might be something you know it might even be a new material that hasn't even been discovered yet that starts niche you know probably an aerospace or defense application uh maybe something that's incredibly high tech like a um, large science facility like cern or um like a nuclear fusion activity but it's something that once the effectiveness or the efficiency of the material that you've produced in space is validated can then see significant market demand growing um because you've you've demonstrated it in a in a harsh environment or a or high value use case, which then others can see would have benefits in renewable energy generation, uh, grid grid to home, energy transfer, major battery storage, whatever it might be. Well, let's take a step back. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, you were mentioning at the beginning that you know we've done manufacturing in space for a while, starting with Skylab, and then of course on the ISS. But uh, unless I'm mistaken, this has always been on a very small scale, basically sort of experimentation, I guess. Yeah. Maybe maybe proof of concept if we're generous, right? Probably most materials we probably produce 
I don't know, some micrograms or grams of? Yes, I think I think really the yeah, I think the most that's ever really been produced is about five kilos um, of these sorts of things. And to be honest, I can't. I, I imagine that probably was at the detriment of a few other experiments that were running. Right. Um, and and this is this is one of the problems with the with the infrastructure that we've had is there's never really been a dedicated facility to doing it. There was there was the wake shield on the space shuttle um, where they did um, I think it was semiconductor crystals and. Uh, the problem they had with that is that although it was dedicated um, to that particular experiment, was that actually it was it was too close to the shuttle during its operation, and so basically the water vapor mm. that the water vapor that was kicked out of the shuttle ended up contaminating uh, the the semiconductors that they were looking to produce. And in terms of now going from this call it uh, experimental proof of concept type uh, production we've done in the past to uh, well, let's call it industrial scale, is there is it just sort of like a linear thing, or is there any technological obstacles we have to overcome which um, maybe don't meet the eye immediately which might be like of a non-linear nature like something that we really have to solve um, before we can scale up i think it's a it's a probably a mixture of the two i mean i'm you know i'm excited by the possibility of commercial space stations and those being bigger and better uh, you know take axiom uh, for example or, or nanorex and all the others that are, that are looking at those kinds of commercial stations but i think we're also there's also kind of like a an iterative or generational issue that we're still really looking at the ISS as, okay, how do we put a module onto the space station? And then as we retire other parts of the space station, we continue to grow the commercial elements. That kind of creates a problem for scaling in space manufacturing because it doesn't it doesn't prevent the problems that you had on the space station. Um, so you still have humans in the loop. It's still at the same altitude. Uh, so it's still living in that residual atmosphere left by the space station and even the bits that escape from Earth. At the same time, having that kind of major infrastructure is going to be incredibly important for when we do scale the processes that we have essentially an enormous facility orbiting the Earth that we can move those production processes into. But right now, none of the in-space manufacturing players are ready to deploy an entire factory in space. So I think you need infrastructure that's available that really acts as stepping stones to scaling different types of in-space manufacturing. Now, in part, that's what we do at Spaceforge with our four-star platforms, is you can start from the proof of concept scale and scale your approach into small production runs, medium production runs, and then even potentially high volume with some of the future uh, vehicles that we're working on. But at the same time, you've got things coming along like Sierra Nevada's Dream Chaser, uh, Talisalania mm. Spaces, um, Space, Space Rider, Rider. For, for example, <laughs> where actually that also is a pretty good sweet spot between really being able to convert the entire vehicle into a small orbiting factory with its own return capability that can still allow you to meet the needs of uh, quite a large number of customers. Again, sort of going a bit more detail, in terms of the scaling up, is there any sort of... Um limiting factor let's say that's um that could be complicated i, I don't know maybe like uh, energy requirements or something like that yeah and energy is one of the things that i would would touch on i mean obviously you know if, you, if you're doing a small scale uh, micro factory the the power is not so great certainly not when you need to divide that power up across running the rest of your satellite platform so you know i'm, I'm always interested in improvements in in power um, for satellite architecture uh, and the improvements in that. And then I think the other the other limiting factor is the availability of launch and the availability of return. And so with, with launch opportunities, of course, if you have a small platform like a CubeSat or sub 50 kilos, there are many rideshare opportunities that you can leverage. But beyond beyond really rideshare opportunities, as you start to move up the, the kilos launched, then obviously you start to shrink the, the availability of the launches you can, you can choose from. 
And so it's interesting to be in a market which right now is incredibly, incredibly small, but at the same time can foresee an enormous demand only, you know, four or five years away where we're going to really need to ramp up our launch availability. And then on the flip side of that, of course, you're producing these things in space. You need a way to return them. Um, And so that's why I think also the cadence and opportunities to return from space are also incredibly critical um, in order order to scale in space manufacturing. It's interesting. Let's just uh, stay on the launch point for a moment. I mean, you mentioned rideshare. Obviously, when you produce something in space, I assume time is of the essence, right? Because I mean, every minute uh, you're not producing, you're losing valuable product. Is is rideshare? actually a viable option in your mind? It's viable in the early days. Um, but I mean, even, even a Space Forge, we're looking at really, uh, you know, 18 to 24 months away, starting to procure dedicated launch or being the main the main customer in small launch vehicles in order to have the ability to make things in space as and when we need them. I think the, the key criteria is not that you need to be making something immediately when you arrive on orbit. It's the when you are making something on orbit, you need to time that production so that you line up to the manufacturing processes back on the ground. So mm. say, say you wanted to um, produce a component for a car for, for Jaguar Land Rover. It, well, it's of very little use to Jaguar if you return those components and then Jaguar have to hold on to them for six months before the next production line is ready to use them. Um, so I think it's going to be really quite critical that in-space manufacturing companies can time their production runs so that they are of the most use to their customers and their own schedules back on the ground. Oh, well, that's really impressive. Okay, if if we actually achieve that, what you're mentioning there, which is basically just-in-time manufacturing, extending the supply chain into space, then I think we will be able to legitimately say that we have established the, the space economy. Yes, yes, and well, that, that's very much where I would like to be. And uh, yeah, I think I think I think I can see the opportunities for getting there. And I think again, this is this is one of the critical reasons around what materials you choose to manufacture in space is that you want to choose things which don't require disruption uh, to the industries back on the ground to the extent that really it might be a few layers down the supply chain but they don't even know the part of it was made in space and that's how seamless the transition from in-space manufacturing to being used on the ground becomes okay the other necessary part you already mentioned is is, is re-entry that obviously you need to get stuff back from space right and so the way we're doing this right now if something gets done at small scale in the space station of course it may come back on one of the vehicles that comes back anyway like like a, a dragon capsule. So that's obviously that's not what you guys are doing, right? The Forge Star is designed to come back. Yes, correct. It is. So the way that we're coming back is nothing new. Um, there lo- lots of lots of ways of coming back from space have been have been tested and developed and, and even done. But for for various reasons, the ablative capsule has always been the preferred way to come back. And I obviously have an incredible appreciation for that, and I don't deny the simplicity of it. But uh, Dragon, the, you know, Dragon or Soyuz both pretty much come back in the same way. There's a there's there are variations in their landing speeds and and some deployment mechanisms, but pretty much the same kind of thing. Then of course we have the space shuttle. The Russian Buran, and really since then there hasn't been a better way to come back from space until now. So even even with the creation of the Dragon, actually the U.S. space shuttle on a per kilo basis was still um, more efficient at return. Mm-hmm. But the way that we're coming back from space is um, it's not a new methodology, and I have to be careful what I say here. But uh, uh, and it has been done, but it comes back much much more gently. 
than the traditional ablative capsule. So our overall kinetic energy on landing is much lower. That means that we can move into markets, um, which basically the traditional way of returning from space would prevent, because essentially if you wanted to handle fragile or, or delicate materials, unless your clamping mechanisms and protection mechanisms around what you've just made in space are exceptional, then there's a good chance that you might lose that material or, or that experiment in that microsecond of impact mm. on Earth. And so the way that the way that we're coming back basically allows us to overcome those barriers. And at the same time, the way that we come back means that we have a much smaller landing zone. So we can deploy um, our, our return technology basically to wherever we need to go next in the supply chain. Um, so although, of course, you know, being, being a UK company, we're looking at returning to the UK. We are also interested in returning to other countries so that we can better interface with the supply chains that are on their doorsteps. So, so ultimately, you can uh, land right in uh, Jaguar Land Rover's backyard. <laughs> that is where sense. I would, that is very much where I would like to get to. <laughs> okay, understood. And it's interesting you mentioned that um, certain products being more fragile and um, uh, then hence the, the type of re-entry capability um, methodology matters. How product agnostic is the Forge Star platform, right? I mean, we went through a few of the use cases, right? I mean, Z-Blend, which you guys are not doing, but then we're talking about some of the materials. We briefly mentioned biological materials. I mean, how flexible is the platform? So the, this, is, this is one of the reasons why we, we developed the Forge Star the way that we did. One was so that basically its entire architecture is is scalable. So we're working on, you know, tens of kilos, hundreds of kilos uh, in terms of platform capability, but we are yet to find the limit where our return technology, for example, stops working. So we're even considering above, um, you know, the multi-ton class. The um, other elements is that the, the the payload module is entirely interchangeable. So really, I like to think of it as almost like a cassette player. Um, and the payload is the cassette. And actually, you can just pull that out and put a new one in. So one mission might be uh, you're producing a new material in space, some kind of composite. You return it to Earth, you give your composite to the customer, and then you put in a, you put in a life science payload, and then you launch that mission. Um, and that flexibility um, in terms of the payload is obviously incredibly advantageous uh, to developing the in-space manufacturing market. And at the same time, that offers us enormous flexibility in the types of missions that we can run. So we might be doing kind of full-scale in-space manufacturing for a customer at the same time we might have a pharmaceutical customer who's like, well, actually, I'm only interested in running my payload for about 10 days, and then I would like it back as quickly as possible. Um, so we're even able to cater for those sorts of mission profiles as well. Okay, so there's flexibility, actually a lot of flexibility, probably, of course, within the sort of large-scale variables, like, again, like maximum power you can draw from the Forge Star and things like that. Yeah, indeed. So the, uh, I mean, obviously, the longer the longer the uh, the mission, the more we need to be considerate of our of our power requirements. Um, but there's there's no reason we can't you know effectively we can almost overclock it uh, for a couple of weeks if mm -hmm. we need if we need to get that customer that kind of that power or, or that level of data rate. So we are we are working with a number of partners who already provide some of those services where we can say, well, here's, here's our four-star platform and we can use your payload or your, your ground segment equipment in order to deliver uh, a mission really as a, as a full suite service provider to a customer back on the ground. I'm going to call it the inner part, right? The outer part being the Forge Star, let's call it spacecraft platform. And then let, let me call it the inner part, which would actually be like, let's say something like a bioreactor or the equivalent to produce materials. So you're obviously doing the, the spacecraft platform. Are you looking to do the inner part as well, the actual payload? Uh, in, in many ways, we can just be that outer part provider 
with the four star one and offer customers the opportunity with some standardized payload interfaces to just leverage the return element of our platform. So that might be us partnering with an, an ice cubes um, or, or a bioreactor to basically off a, uh, offer an off ISS research mission for something like life science. At the same time, we have been uh, developing our own payload technologies to cover off about half of the um, hundred or so uh, quite lucrative markets uh, that I was talking about earlier across the uh, physical material, um, advanced composites and materials type markets um, so that we can offer that both to customers who want to try and develop a new material or to even improving materials that we already know have great properties back on our planet but can be enhanced by producing in space. Okay, I think this kind of partly goes towards my next question already, which is about how you see Spaceforge's business model. So for example, one option would be, of course, for you guys to be vertically integrated and say, hey, we become the manufacturers of this material for the automotive industry. We do everything. We have the Ford Star, we develop the payload, and then we'll, we'll sell to the, the customers ourselves. And the other, I guess on the other end, it would be sort of like you as a platform operator and you, um, I guess, rent out the Ford Star by, by mission or something like that. Where, where do you see you guys sitting? So I would say that it's a balance of the two. Um, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm acutely aware that we're quite a small company and, and mm. maintaining our focus is, is really critical to our success. And so in, in one way, we are in that kind of position where the materials that we're focused on already have um, end users um, ready and waiting for when we commence on our material delivery. And we are looking really forward to scaling that up Um and really, that that's what's generating some of the pathways for our future platforms and, and vehicles. At the same time, though, where we're seeing the opportunity to take um, different raw materials with us and perhaps even discover a, a new type of composite or alloy, we're keeping... Um, I suppose we're keeping one eye on those opportunities so that as and when they arise, we can leverage them to the full effect. And then that might well support our second and third and, you know, maybe even 10th or 15th market um, once we scaled up the first. I guess another way of asking this question is, is where do you see the core competency of the company? Is it in developing effectively industrial scale um, manufacturing platforms? Or does it also include having the knowledge of how to do certain types of manufacturing of certain products? in space i think i think first and foremost it has it has to be the in-space manufacturing platform mm. developing developing the ability to essentially provide an end-to-end -end production life cycle after launch i think is, is going to be critical for any provider um, and the the ability to be able to leverage that platform and use it in a way where the customer on the ground needs it, whether or not you know that's the production of a certain high quality material or interfacing to just in time manufacturing, and the ability to return it on demand is is going to be um, enormously beneficial. At the same time, that platform is of little use if we don't understand what it can be used for. Sure. Um, so we've been building up the expertise in non space industries to ensure that really we're speaking those kinds of customers' languages, um, so that we can communicate the value of making things in space in a way which they understand uh, and to be honest in a, in a way which doesn't frighten them because of course you know space is always seen as, as risky and expensive and sure. showing that it isn't uh, to them has been has been an, an incredible journey um, and in, indeed those sorts of the conversations are where we found some of our best customers. So, so have you managed to have these conversations or have people been uniformly <laughs> frightened by space? <laughs> yes they have they have been uh, I mean you know understandably uh, you know it's only it's only when you're in the sector do you learn these sorts of things um, but 
but we have we have managed really to um, have those conversations. I mean, yeah, everybody thinks space is cool, um, and it is. Uh, you know, when we've met with automotive manufacturers and, and so forth, getting over that conversation um, is always the biggest hurdle. But once we do, and you know, we can point to the fact that what we are doing is really nothing new. That gives that gives those other industries an enormous confidence boost in actually understanding the opportunity. Uh, for in-space manufacturing and the value that that might have for their own industry later on. Terrific. Let's. Um, we've been mentioning some of the other platforms already, like Skylab back in the days and the ISS. Um, let's do a quick lightning round where I mention some potential platforms and you can maybe give me sort of a 10, 15 seconds <laughs> opinion or some sure. interesting fact. And oh, by the way, I forgot to ask you, this, this, this Forgestar is, is reusable as well, right? It is, yes. Yeah, so okay. um, I mean, I, I hope to get it to reusable status. Um, I, I would describe it as refurbishable at first um, okay. but really we want to be in a position where we can completely change the way that we approach satellite design and manufacture because we'll be able to return them and reuse them terrific okay so potential space manufacturing platforms uh, we're obviously talking here about the space watch watch star and we're clearly very excited about that. That's why we invested. Um, the International Space Station. Um, not a good place to do anything beyond proof of concept, um, mostly because of the limitations imposed on it by its power and, and heating constraints, anything that might pose a danger to an astronaut, uh, and the fact, to be honest, that it's getting quite old. Um, so uh, beyond experimentation, it would be a no-go from me. Understood. And uh, is that the same for the new Chinese space station? I don't remember the name now or is there anything different about it you've seen i think i think the the main thing that that has going for it is the fact that it's new um right. so it doesn't have it doesn't have a lot of the really the legacy issues that the iss is suffering from right now um but again there's a human in the loop um so it, i i would say you could do more proof of concepts than you could on the iss um but again it's simply it's not a factory understood um how about an attachment to the ISS, like the um, the first iteration of the planned Axiom station. Uh, so I am excited by some of the stuff that Axiom are doing. Uh, the first attachment, I, I don't think is going to be that beneficial to in-space manufacturing because, of course, you know, you've just attached yourself to, to an old mm. piece of hardware. So you're, you're going to get some of the issues from that. Um, but I am really excited by their free flyer concept, the idea of having a factory which can mm -hmm. undock from a station go somewhere else, manufacture what it needs to, and then dock again and leverage the rest of the infrastructure for getting it back, um, I think is incredibly exciting. All right, you mentioned free flyers. Okay, so how about the Dragon capsule, for example, as a free flyer? Um, great volume um, and, and good, good capacity for in-space manufacturing, but it's going to have the issue that it already does when it comes to its return. Um, so it's going to be really useful for some manufacturing processes and less so for others. The, the issue being that it's, it's, it's too many, like, uh, like G-forces are too high? or um... uh, So um, the, I, I don't think the G-loading is is too bad, um, but you're going to have issues basically with its its um, impact on landing, uh, right. potential seawater ingress, uh, those kinds of things. And then possibly it might even be the time taken from getting that payload out of Dragon and to its customer um, could also offer some complications. Would that be better on a Starliner if Inverted flies? Um, I don't know. I do, to be honest, I don't, know, I don't know enough about Starliner to, to offer uh, much of an opinion there. Um, I would say that, you know, again, it's an ablative capsule, so it will have similar concerns. 
I think the other thing with Starliner or, or Dragon is the um, from a manufacturing perspective, you really want it to be doing only that manufacturing um, production line because mm. if you start to bring in other different manufacturing payloads, then they might have competing requirements um, or even things like competing outgassing and those sorts of things. So you really don't want to contaminate one production process by bringing on board another. Understood. Okay, the other one you've mentioned before already was the, um, the Space Rider. The Thales Alinea Space Rider? Uh, so I uh, I like the volume of it, uh, but the big issue for Space Rider right now is um, relative. It's the way that it's going to come back um, is to the sea. Mm. So that might that might offer some some um, awkward problems. Uh, and the other thing is the I think they're only talking about launching maybe one a year. So it's turnaround okay. times. The, it's turnaround <laughs> times if you want to use it for in-space manufacturing are, are going to be pretty few and far between. Okay, yeah, that's not the cadence we want. No. <laughs> on, on the other hand, one would hope that that would be solvable if there's enough commercial demand. Yes, okay. yes absolutely. Um, I guess uh, somewhat somewhat similar. The, you also already mentioned the uh, Sierra Nevada Dream Chaser. Uh, so uh, again, another platform that I quite like. Um, mostly because of its landing gear. So you can, you know, you can launch it from wherever you need to be and you can return it, um, hopefully to numerous different spaceports or airports. Um, so that that I think is going to be hugely beneficial to lining up with other industries on the ground. Certainly, you know, if we could deploy our payload into it from the UK uh, and then it returns, for example, to a customer we might have in Australia, then that's, that's hugely advantageous. Although I, that would be interesting from an import and export tax point of view. Okay, and then the last one I had on my list... Um... Um, which is going to be completely honest and interesting commercial, commercially because it will probably never be available for commercial production is the um, the Space Force X-37 <laughs> space plane, just in case you have a view there. Uh, now, the, now, that's a platform I would love to learn more about, but not as a, as a, as <laughs> but a, nobody not knows. a US citizen. I don't think I ever will. Um, yes, same here. I mean, that's, that's one of the ways really that we've been looking at the Forge Star platform is as a mini X-37B. I think that's a hugely fascinating platform. Um, and obviously incredibly capable. That's really the sort of area where I think I would hope that more players can go into commercial versions of them uh, because I think that's I think that would be an incredible way to build capability and, to be honest, establish return cadence as well. Okay, speaking of more players, is anybody else you can think of that we haven't spoken about? Um, uh, quite interested in what Space Tango are doing uh, from the pharmaceutical side of things. And I think they're, they're developing a return vehicle as well, uh, which certainly from a, from a life science perspective, I mm. think could be incredibly engaging um, because it's, at the, to my knowledge, they are the only people looking at how, basically, how do you move life science research off station at that kind of scale? Um, and I certainly think that's going, I think that's going to be really important around the kind of um, uh, biotech and, and life science side. I think they're... Hey. ST42. Right. Okay, so the Ford Star, when do you envision it flying? Next year. Oh wow. Um, okay. Which gives me I <laughs> oh, I love saying that. And uh, so yeah, our first our first mission is next year. Um and then we are looking really to um increase the cadence quite significantly year on year after that. Um so in 2023, uh looking to conduct at least four missions um and then by 2025 have have a fleet of around 12 platforms. And I assume in the beginning, those will be um, sort of minimum viable products slash proof of concept type platforms, right? Yeah, yeah, they will be for very niche use cases. Um, we will be using them really to do a lot of development activities around the sorts of materials that our customers are interested in uh, to assure them that we can meet their requirements. And if all goes well, when do you see yourself um, in a 
in a state in a position where you will have this sort of like higher cadence, regular manufacturing for customers? Uh, around 2025, mm-hmm. um, when the uh, Four Star 2 um, enters the market, um, that allows us to meet the demands of about 10 times more customers than we can with the Four Star 1, um, especially as we improve the refurbishment and reuse of them as well. Um, so it allows us to build much greater on-orbit capacity without hugely increasing our cost base with the requirements of having a huge factory on the ground. Okay. And then look at, looking beyond that, so... I don't know, pick the right time frame, whether that's 10 years or something else. Like, what's your ultimate vision for the company? By 2030, I would like to be knocking on the door of pretty much anybody that's got a rocket and saying, I need more of them. Um, <laughs> right. it's, it's, it's a nice problem to have that uh, in-space manufacturing can very quickly become one of the markets that's limited by the um, available number of launches. Really, we see ourselves as becoming almost intrinsic to how we manufacture um, back on Earth, and I, I want to see I want to see um, an industry where in-space manufacturing is utilised almost to the point that we uh, that it's considered a bit like GPS or you know Google Maps in the way that satellites interact with it, so that really it might be that you you get into your car, um, it might be that it's the energy you use to power your computer that you've really gotten. Mm-hmm. It's almost to the point that it's boring that part of it has been made in space. Um, at the same time, I think it, it would be remiss of me not to say that, you know, for the despite the the, the climate impact of, of accessing space and, and building satellites and those sorts of things, the opportunity to have a sustainable presence in space with something that returns from space so it doesn't leave debris, and at the same time is making something in the space environment which back on the Earth can prevent enormous amounts of CO2 emissions and, and create okay. power efficiencies is going to be hugely beneficial really to the way that um, us as a civilization continues to move forward. Mm-hmm. Much further down the road, do you ever think you will look at the other type of uh, space manufacturing we discussed, which is doing something in, in space for use in space? And I mean that it could be on the moon or Mars, but it could also still be in orbit like or near orbit if you're talking about something like a O'Neill type station. So I am, I, I am excited about some some of the opportunities to join um, those kind of in, those kinds of endeavours. Um, I think you know the fact that we're able to manufacture something and return is actually going to be quite unique for manufacturing things and landing on other planets, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have been we have been looking at you know some of our closest neighbours with Venus and Mars, for example, around who actually our return technology offers um, a very effective way of landing on other planets, and it mm-hmm. could be that actually we start the manufacturing process in space on the journey towards those planets so that by the time we land on Mars, mm. actually you've got some ready-made products to help you deploy your first Martian base um, or, or set up um, opportunities around there across even robotics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, let's briefly talk about uh, financing since we, as we said, we you just announced the seed financing round. Since this is such a futuristic theme that I assume most people will be much less familiar with this than, let's say, with Earth observation or satellite communications, how have the discussions been with uh, investors, especially to the extent they're not specialist investors like ourselves so i mean we you know we <laughs> we have we have the joy being in the uk that the um it, it's very it's a very small community uh, yeah. for people that invest in space uh, and then it's an even smaller community for people that would invest in space hardware or, or in space manufacturing right um in in many ways i could say that fundraising has been a challenge but also in many ways it it hasn't i think think that kind of changed um between the um our first fundraise and this fundraise because the first fundraise we were very much space is really cool 
uh, and why wouldn't you want to make stuff there? And, you know, we, we did, we were successful, but actually the, the story that changed was actually, yes, in-space manufacturing is, is cool and we think space is cool, but actually here's the value that it means to these industries on the ground, whether or not that's automotive um, or, or quantum computing or whatever, and here are the things that we can do. That's then kind of compounded by the fact that actually you don't need to do much of the supply chain in space to see significant benefits back on the ground um so of course with this round um you know of course ref e2mc participating um and we went across europe uh, and the us and found a group of investors that kind of shared <laughs> our vision for in-space manufacturing and really i think it was more a journey around finding the right people uh, and the right investors than it was anything around talking to lots of them uh, so <laughs> in the grand scheme of things i don't think we had to we didn't have to have as many conversations as I think I've seen some other space startups have in trying to find investment because although the technology aspects of what we do are, are doing are incredibly futuristic, we also weren't competing in a market um, that, uh, you know, is is rife with competition like um, Earth Observation or, or Telecom sure. and trying to find those uh, you know, ten percent edges. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we, I think you managed to get a really good group of investors together who. Yeah, I'm really have us, uh, I'm the same really reason. pleased. <laughs> and and one of your investors is, um, I think, basically the Welsh government through some of its entities. And you are based in Wales. How is how is how is it being in Wales as a location for a space company? It's probably been one of the best decisions we made um, as Spaceforge. So originally we were we were on the outskirts of Bristol, just over the bridge from Wales. Mm -hmm. um, sure. Chiming away in our in our garage and stuff and, and it was our chair dr roger sykes that um introduced us to the welsh government and explained what we were doing and their support has been incredible so not not only have we had the the benefit of their their investments into us but we've then also had the benefits that in in wales we're able to establish a much larger manufacturing um uh, manufacturing facility in in wales than we could do elsewhere in england so obviously i mean you know there's there's a huge center of space knowledge around harwell and oxfordshire but it has sure. the price it has the prices of oxfordshire um whereas in cardiff we can procure you know we can secure premises three times the size at a third of the cost we have the backing of welsh government both in terms of developing those facilities and and financially and to be honest wales also offers a, a balance of life that you you your quality of life that you, you probably don't get unless you're in you know in, unless you're in california you know at the end of our shift uh, at the end of our days we can go surfing on the gower coast um mm -hmm. you know you can go hiking in the brecon beacons and those sorts of things so it's it's really quite fantastic and then we have the benefit really that we the, the space community in wales is very small as you might imagine yes um, and we are one of the only companies in we are one of the only space companies in wales and even then we're one of the only space companies in wales that's not looking at kind of small launch right. so we're telling a we're telling a totally different story um to some of the other players and that's really chiming well uh welsh government so our political engagement in wales is also much easier to secure because you know i'm, I'm asking welsh ministers to support us rather than trying to knock on the door of boris johnson along with all of the other space companies um and so it's it's been an incredible journey to be there and uh, yeah i'm looking really forward really to, to continuing to grow our presence in wales yeah and um you said the lifestyle great golf courses as well <laughs> For people who make golf. <laughs> yes uh yes i mean I, yeah i have to go yeah my, my dad's much better at golf than i am i just prefer the driving range um but we um i mean you know having even things like facility i don't know if you've ever stayed at the celtic manor for that yes they? of course um, yeah, uk so, space conference 2019 yes, yes so that was uh that 
one of the probably one of the best hotels I've ever stayed at in the UK and then the activities that you can do there I mean yeah there's there's golf quad biking um treetop climbing and those sorts of things so it's it's really Wales has pretty much got its own kind of spirit of adventure um and that has really that's also helped us pull in international talent so I mean we've we're today we are I think we became 17 people this week and we now represent mm-hmm. 12 different countries wow. um cool. so you know we've we've recruited from Wales but equally we've recruited from as far afield as Brazil um and all of them have come back like you know okay yes you have to come to the UK and the weather's appalling but when it's not mm-hmm. appalling the things that you can do um where we're based are remarkable great that was my next question and um are you i assume you're probably hiring right now uh yes yes we are pretty much always hiring um so we i mean it's this time last year it was myself and andrew and an intern all of us working you know on a fold-out table in a living room uh and today to think that we're we're 17 people i think there are five more roles currently live on the page and we're probably going to be putting up five more over this year uh and then we'll be doubling our headcount again by the end of next year um in order to to keep pace with all of the programs that we've got running um so yeah if somebody's listening uh, and they would like to have a role with space force please do apply terrific we'll put it in the in the notes as well the link to the website okay last question as always uh, science fiction do you like science fiction what kind of science fiction absolutely what's my favorite science fiction god that's a that's a big question um you get bonus points if you can think of space manufacturing being featured in uh, science fiction <laughs> uh it, well i mean i would to be honest i would probably i don't know how many times you've had this answer but i would have to say douglas adams um and <laughs> the um is it the um uh sparty blart fast uh and his planet building company yes um, the most remarkable story uh, and to be honest even in the film the portrayal by bill nye is really good um but i i am a fan of the so off the wall science fiction that it probably couldn't ever be possible um so douglas adams uh, and the bobiverse gets a mention for me as well and then mm-hmm. a huge consumer of cinema um star wars is what got me into the industry in the first place don't know if i've ever told you this but my granddad used to run the odeon um in leicester square in london oh right uh, <laughs> during the time of the original star wars trilogy uh, so he's got like mark hamill's signature and that kind of stuff and yeah, for so, people people who don't know this is this is probably the most well-known uh, movie theater in in central london and it's yes. typically seen a lot of uh, premieres of movies yeah it's where yeah it's where the premieres tend to go for like the the big kind of uh, blockbusters and so grew up with star wars and and star trek i mean i've got a uss enterprise um unopened which you know i'm sure actually might be quite a bit now um so yeah huge consumer of it and what what i love seeing is really going back through that old in space manufacturing um sorry not the old science fiction uh you know written in maybe even the 30s and 40s and now seeing actually how much of it we've achieved i think is quite remarkable terrific um and i love that you mentioned hitchhiker hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and the planet building i guess that could be the ultimate vision of of space manufacturing absolutely <laughs> so, yeah if i can achieve that i will be happy <laughs> Josh, it's been a pleasure. Best of luck for Spaceforge. Uh, we were obviously, for obvious reasons, um, accompanying your journey quite closely, and I'm sure we'll speak soon. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. 
If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.